You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. It was really good. That was, that was all right. All right. Let's try it again, all right? Good morning, everybody. That was awesome. That was better. That was better. And uh, we're really glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, tuning in online, we're really glad you're here. We had some online issues apparently last service. I think we fixed them by this service, but we're really glad you're tuning in right now. So we're in this series, Elephants in the Church. This is week two. Last week we did racism. This week we did poverty. And what I've told our team for months is uh, we're going to talk about a central issue, a core issue. But the thing is, like, there's all these like fingers that come out of your palm, right? That, that they're like all these things. Like, if we, we could spend an hour on this one, 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 and this is going to be no different. But what we wanted to try to do is focus on that core issue. And then let the Holy Spirit continue to grow our, our thoughts and understandings. That's why we continue to put together a resource page if you want to go read more, learn more about the subject. Same is true of last week. So hopefully you'll follow up and do some of that. Those of you watching online too, you can see that later in the week. Here's where I want to start today. I just want to prep you real quick. We're going to talk about what where poverty came from, is that God's way, and then what does God want us to do about it? And uh, what I've said to our team related to this is, as long as I talk about this, everybody's Okay. But it's the moment that we start applying the thing to our lives that all of a sudden it gets hard. Everybody believes poverty is a problem in the world and somebody needs to do something about it. But the moment it intersects our lives and our hearts, all of a sudden it's like, now wait a minute, pastor. I didn't create that problem. I didn't create that situation. And so what we want to do right now is invite God in. I want to ask that God would help us to get rid of any preconceived notions for a moment and just listen to him and whatever he wants to say. So let's pray quickly, right? Heavenly Father, We are here in your name and on your behalf because we love you. So God, whether people are at home watching online, whether it's right now or later even on down the road, whether we're here right now, we come to you. We worship you and we celebrate you and we thank you for all that you are doing in our midst. We thank you both for the baptism that we just saw as well as the one that happened earlier this week from somebody visiting us from another area. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you're on the move in our midst and we only pray, God, that you don't leave us the way you found us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, let's jump in really quick by answering this first question. Why did Jesus come to earth? You got an answer in your head? You thinking about it? You got something in mind? Why did Jesus come to earth? We're gonna come back to that question in a minute. I'll never forget when I met Murphy for the first time. Uh, One of the kids in the youth group had brought him to my previous church, and I was a youth pastor at the time, and introduced him to me. And honestly, 100, 120 kids in the youth group at the time, and you're kind of running around, you're trying to say hi to everybody, and oh yeah, I haven't seen that kid in a few weeks. So it's very chaotic and and stressful, and just the way my brain is wired anyway. I remember I, I met him, but didn't think a whole lot of it at that time. Kids would come in, they would visit. But Murphy kept showing up. And over time, we started seeing him more and more and more and more. And I started to learn his story a little. And somewhere early in that process, his family fell apart. And it created a chaotic situation for the family. In fact, his mom was a stay-at-home mom. But when dad was removed from the home for various issues, it created a problem. Years ago, and I don't know if this is true, but about four or five years ago, I heard Andy Stanley, a, a, a pastor who has more of a national stage, I heard him say the number one cause of poverty in America is divorce. And I don't know if he's right or wrong. I do know this. If you take the average income in Avon, say $70,000, it's in that ballpark, and uh, that's almost always a two-working income home. Not always, okay? But if you then divide that into two, whether it works at like 50, 20, or 35, 35, it doesn't matter. If you divide that in two, but then almost double the expenses, you could see how Andy could come to that conclusion, wherever he got that data from. 
And that was kind of the story for Murphy. So when things went sideways with his dad and his dad was pulled out of the home, his mom, who was stay at home and had some issues, now it became a major problem. And I remember the church trying to struggle to figure out how to help them and what to do. And I remember one particular moment, we're sitting in the Chipotle parking lot, and I remember exactly where I was facing, I remember exactly where we were going next, and, and I'm just sitting there, and I remember saying, Murphy, you've been handed a bad hand in life. I don't know if any of you are card players. You got, you got dealt a bad hand. And the question for you is gonna be, will you rise above it? You can't change it, it is what it is, it's the hand you got. How are you gonna play with the hand that you've been dealt? You're either gonna be a victim the rest of your life, or with some help, with some resources, we're gonna rise above this. I remember this past week, um, I recorded a podcast. You should go watch it. I, I recorded it with Jeff Lee. Remember our church is on the board of Family Promise and a guy named Steve Germani, who also goes here and works at Wheeler Mission downtown. And I asked Steve, I said, Steve, what is one misconception about poverty that you think people have? And he said, Matt, one of the biggest misconceptions is that people... Um, have chosen to be here by laziness or by poor choices. He said that is absolutely true in some situations. That, that can be true. But by and large, it just happened. A tragedy, a chaotic moment, something unpredictable happens, and all of a sudden a family finds themselves in a very destitute situation. And the question is, what now? Which comes back to, why did Jesus come to the earth? So I need to start in the very beginning. We'll work our way to Revelation, and we'll do this in, I'm just kidding. But let's start in the beginning for a moment. When God created the universe, I don't know if you know this or not, he created it with abundance. So, you know, he literally creates the stars. Did you know that there are billions and billions of galaxies? And inside each of those billions and billions of galaxies, there's billions and billions of stars. And each of those billions and billions of stars, at least as best as we can tell, many of them have planets around them making billions and billions of planets. In fact, we can't even build telescopes big enough, clear enough, strong enough to see stars that exist in other places yet or galaxies that exist in other places yet. Like God's universe is literally littered with abundance. Then God gets to earth and he separates the, the, the sky from the land and the water from the land. And then it says in Genesis chapter one, verse 20, it says, and God said, let the water team with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And I just wanna point out this one particular passage because as God created everything, he filled it. So he created space, he filled it. He created air, he filled it. He created land, he filled it. He created water, he filled it. And this word team here, it's kind of a weird word, T-E-E-M, for those listening online later, here's what it means. It literally means to abound. So imagine the very first humans, Adam and Eve, that's it. You've got this massive planet and just the waters alone are teeming, abounding with animals, way more than Adam or Eve could ever consume. And the same thing for all the plants and the vegetables and all the animals. I mean, there is so, I mean, it's like crazy how much there is in comparison. You don't need all of that for these two people. And God's earth was built in such a way that they would multiply. In fact, that's actually the challenge to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and everything did. And there's this wide variety of things all over the earth. Did you know, in spite of what you have been told your whole life, that God's earth abounds with resources, abounds with resources. 
The problem isn't whether there are resources all over the earth. The problem, and we see this in the Genesis story, is it doesn't take long in the human sinful heart in its greed and its lusts and its power issues takes those resources and hoards them from others. And it goes very wrong in the story. In fact, jealousy pops up very quickly after this. In fact, Adam and Eve's uh, two sons, Cain and Abel, one gets jealous of the other and kills him. And we see all of a sudden in the story, God's creation is not working the way that it was always intended to work. But God's not done and he doesn't leave things the way they are. Read Genesis sometime, but I recommend you read it with a Christian or with a study Bible or something else so you can help put some of those things into context. But what we see is God is constantly moving and trying to hem in evil while allowing good to flourish. We see it over and over and over again. Death comes as a way for God to hem in evil and to make good flourish. We get to Genesis chapter 12 and God calls a man named Abraham and he tells him this in verse three, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we'll get to that later on down the road. But the idea I want you to latch on to here as we talk about poverty is God desires to bless all of creation. He longs to do that. He wants to do that. He's a good God. Um, Millennials and and Gen Z and Gen Y, and I don't know all the Gen names, but really struggle with one particular thing about God. And it's the God of the Old Testament. And what they mean when they say that is, why does God seem to be so angry and harsh and cruel and mean? And maybe you've wondered that. I started reading a book. I'm not quite done with it yet. It's very, very good, but it's very detailed. And so it takes me a while. But it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? And I don't have it to put up here for you. But the book is so good because it goes through the Old Testament, goes through the passages of the Old Testament, goes through the law, compares it to all of the nations in antiquity and how really God is so much gooder, that's the word I'm using, than all of these others. And what often appears as cruel or harsh or mean is actually justice and righteousness and God trying to create on earth again the beauty of a kingdom that says God is good and wants to provide and to bless. God tells Abraham, you're gonna be the father of many nations, but he's in his 90s and he doesn't have any kids yet. He finally has one son, one son, Isaac. And that that Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau then birth so many of the nations. You can track this down through history. And what's powerful is God's blessing is starting to come true. But God told Abraham, one day your descendants, your children, not in the future when I'm blessed, they're gonna come back to this land. And it happened. In Israel, they were slaves in Egypt and they got to feel all the weight of oppression, of slavery. They got to feel all the weight of lack of resources, of abuse, But God came in and he freed them and he led them into the desert, but they wouldn't believe. They didn't have faith. And so he fed them with manna morning, noon, and night, day after day after day. But he kept telling them, one day, I'm gonna take you into the promised land. And the promised land, there's gonna be a land flowing with milk and honey. And that may not sound great to you because you aren't eating manna morning, noon, and night. Milk and honey sounded great, but he also told them, you're gonna come into this land and there's gonna be groves and cities and things that were built that you didn't have anything to do with. You didn't even put in the effort, but I'm giving it to you because God longed to bless and to provide. But here's what I find fascinating. The one book I do wanna recommend to you, it's this book here. It's called When Helping Hurts. Phenomenal book. And uh, I've committed now, I'm gonna come back and read this book every couple years. 
It is full of so much wisdom. And listen, if you are a, a, a Democrat, I, I don't like the words necessarily liberal in this room. I feel like those are words we use to hurt people. But if that's your bent or if you're watching online, you are going to love parts of this book. And you're going to be deeply offended by parts of this book. And if you're a conservative, you call yourself a Republican. Again, these words, sometimes they put us in camps and we may or may not align with certain things. But you're going to love this book and you're going to hate parts of this book. And that's part of the reason I love this book. Not because it offends everybody equally, but because I think this is such a gospel-saturated book that it challenges the power structures of this world and says, if we're going to look like Jesus, here's what Jesus says. And oh, it is so good. And this book, if I could just recommend one book last week on racism and this week on poverty, this would be the one. Even though it doesn't delve deeply into racism and there's great books on the subject, it delves deeply into gospel and applies it to a wide variety of subjects that I really think you need to tap into. But here's what is fascinating. This book in one paragraph summarizes the way that God tried to bring about his righteous rule and reign on earth through the Israelites. And here's a summary from that book. They say this. In fact, God gave Moses, remember Moses is the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. God gave Moses numerous commands instructing Israel how to care for the poor. The Sabbath, that was the day of rest on Saturday, the day of worship also, guaranteed a day of rest for the slave and the alien. The Sabbath year, that means every seven years, they took a Sabbath year. They didn't work the land. And in fact, Canceled all debts for Israelites. By the way, who, whichever president decides to institute this, I'm guaranteeing you he's getting my vote this coming. Or she, I'll vote for him. But also allowed the poor to glean from the fields. And this is fascinating. Gleaning was a principle that God commanded the Israelites. That when you're working your fields, agricultural society, you don't take everything. You leave some behind. So that the foreigners, the alien, the poor among you who don't have what you have could come in and eat and be cared for by God through you and your hard work. There are actually Christians trying to take up this concept and when they develop a building or something, they actually leave a couple of offices in their space for nonprofits or startup businesses to be able to try to have cheap or free rent to get going. And I, like, I love the way that God's people are reading his word and being challenged in some way or another and to set slaves free, as well as equipping the slaves to be productive. The Jubilee year, so every seven Sabbaths, seven sevens, there was 49. The 50th year is called the year of Jubilee, emphasized liberty. It released slaves and returned land to its original owners. So what happened is amazing is God said every 50 years we erase all debts, everybody starts over. Imagine buying a car in year 48, not that they had cars back then, but imagine buying a donkey and you haven't paid it off yet, but in year 50, it's like, doesn't matter, all debts erased. Imagine in year 40, it's not your year, it's the year of Israel, but you come in and you're maybe 20 something years old, it's year 40, you got 10 years to go and you start a new business and the business for whatever the reason being falls apart and now you and your family are working as indentured servants to the person you borrowed from and there's no hope. You will pass this debt onto your children and to their children until the debt is paid off, not in Israel. That's how the other nations worked. In Israel, year 50, all debts were erased. How's that for a system? It released slaves and returned land to its original owners. Other laws about debt, tithing, and gleaning ensured that the poor would be cared for each day of the year. In fact, it says the commands were so extensive that they were designed to achieve the ultimate goal of eradicating poverty among God's people. Deuteronomy 15.4 actually goes so far as to say there should be no poor 
among you. This is God's heart for the topic. But what happened is Israel failed to live up to God's standards. God made clear, in fact, when he gave them the covenant, I will do these things if you do these things. And the problem is God was faithful when Israel was faithless, but it put God in a hard situation because he told them, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I will hold you accountable. I will discipline you, but I will not give up on you. And we see that. When we get to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is calling Israel to stop living the way they're living, stop going the way they're going. And when we get to this passage, I want to show you now, it's in Isaiah 58. It's tremendously convicting. Man, I've been reading it. It's been ruining me for weeks now. I knew this was going to be one of the major texts for today. I've known it for maybe months now because God used it just to convict me to my core because I, could, I had these verses kicking around in my head and I couldn't remember where I heard them from. And I went and looked it up and I was Isaiah 58. And on Isaiah 58, basically the first few verses, I'm not going to show you, you can look later, God rebukes Israel. He says, you come to me with your fasting and your Sabbath worship. You come to me with your new moon festivals. But you don't do what I told you to do. Like, why are you faking your way through this? If we were to apply this today, it'd be like him saying, why are you at church? Why are you taking communion? Why do you fast and worship me and put songs on in your car on your way home? Do I care about all of these outward displays if your heart isn't for me? Here's his actual words in Isaiah 58, verse 3. The people are complaining to God and they say, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have, you, have we humbled ourselves and, and you have not even noticed? Now, what God is saying is, look, I hear you complaining. You're fasting, you give up eating, you give up all these things. And you're like, but God, I was asking you to do something. You didn't do it. Why didn't you do it? And then God's response, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And notice what he says, you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for the bowing of one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide your poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Israel was supposed to be a sneak peek of Jesus Christ. Israel was supposed to be that nation that all the other nations would look at and say, why don't they just take more? Why don't they just spend more? Why I mean, they work so hard. Why do they give away? Why do they do these things? But the other nations would look at them and see the prosperity of the nation and the blessing of the nation and God's provision over them. They would attack Israel. And even though they were bigger and stronger, Israel would win because God was with them. And it wasn't ever just going to be a physical battle. It was going to be a spiritual battle, one in the spiritual world. But Israel never kept up its side of the bargain. As far as we know, we don't have any recording of Israel experiencing the year of Jubilee. How tragic. What we do know is people started abusing the system. 
And that abuse can happen in many different ways. It can look like people trying to uh, take on a, a massive debt or loan from another fellow Israelite right before the Jubilee year, knowing that it would be erased, which then created business people who said, I'm not simply gonna give my money away, I'm gonna give it away with a higher interest on the front end so that I make sure I get some of this or most of this recouped by the time the year Jubilee hits. And the entire system broke because sin and the human heart keeps ruining things. God actually told the Israelites not to charge interest on another Israelite, but they did it anyway. So why did Jesus come to earth? If I were to sit down and ask this question, I think many of us would say things like, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's right out of the Bible, right? Like, that's a good answer. Jesus said that. Some will say Jesus came to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, it's right in the Great Commission. Like, that's not made up, right? Some will say Jesus came to set up a new kingdom of love. I mean, there's no shortage of chapters in Mark and in Matthew that affirm that. So how do we summarize Jesus came for? Well, I, I like Luke 4, and I think there's more to say about this, but here was Jesus' answer. Here's the context. Jesus goes into his hometown and he stands up in the synagogue. It wasn't uncommon for traveling preachers to come through and stand up and speak. Jesus gets up to the front, he grabs a scroll, he unrolls the scroll, he goes right to a point in Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah. Here's what he reads, Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, he rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, said, this has happened today in your midst. And he went and he sat down. Like, that was a short sermon. How do we get more of those from Pastor Matt? But the power of what Jesus did in that moment, as he said, all the prophecies that you've read about for years, they're true right now in me. In other words, Jesus came to build and establish something on earth that doesn't look like anything you're gonna find anywhere else. I'm, I'm an equal opportunity offender, I hope. Um, it doesn't look like the Republican Party and it doesn't look like the Democratic Party. It looks different. It just looks different. The book, When Helping Hurts, they tried to take a stab at this and I think they did a pretty good job. Here was their summary, and I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit for you. They said, here's why Jesus came. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said that over and over and over again. I am the king who is bringing healing to the entire cosmos. This word cosmos here literally means all matter created everywhere. When sin came, it didn't just wreck my family and my life, it wrecked your family and your life and every family that's ever existed, but all the way to the end of the cosmos, all created matter is not working the way that God intended for it to work. But when Jesus came, he didn't simply come, as we often say in baptism, Jesus didn't just come to be my personal Lord and Savior. Yes, he came to save me and he came to save you. He came to make the universe right again. That's what that means. But he says, if and only if you repent and believe in me, you will someday enjoy all the many benefits that my kingdom brings. We live in what we call the land of the already and the not yet. And what that means is God's kingdom is coming on this earth through us. 
What Jesus began in Luke 4 absolutely came true, and we keep living it out today. Jesus made the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He went to the poorest of the poor and loved them and served them, but he also went to the richest of the rich, and he ate with tax collectors and other sinners, it says. Why are tax collectors such a big deal? Why are they often lumped in with the extremely immoral? It's because they were Israelites who knew God's word but refused to live according to it. They partnered with Rome and the oppression of the Israelite people by overtaxing those who didn't have resources. And they could add on top of that their own tax, their own fees, and they had the right to do that to collect for themselves. But we see Jesus go right to Matthew, right to Zacchaeus, and eat with their friends and eat with their loved ones and to hang out with them and to call them into the same kind of kingdom. And Zacchaeus, one of those guys, he gets it. Like he's been listening to Jesus preach for weeks now, maybe months now. Every time he comes through town, he's maybe listening. And one day he climbs up in a tree and Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. We're gonna go to your house and eat. And he's blown away. But whatever Jesus is saying at lunch that day, I don't know. But Zacchaeus becomes a broken man. He knows in his heart of hearts that he has lived for something other than God's kingdom. And he says, here this day. And he just starts giving away his wealth. And if anybody says, I cheated him, I'll pay him back, and I'll pay him back more. Jesus says, man, the kingdom of God has come to this home. Because here's a person who sees it and hears it and gets it. In the book, um, When Hoping Hurts, oh, it's so good. He says this. He says, we need a king and his kingdom. And here's the problem the two-party system that we have today, we tend to focus on one or the other. He uses an example of a pastor in the South during the raging uh, racism of America that was going on back then. And this pastor's son writes of this. He says, my dad couldn't stand the Ku Klux Klan. He hated racism, but he was afraid. He didn't speak against it very much, if at all. He was afraid for his life. He was afraid for his kids' lives. He was afraid he'd be fired. So he would speak against racism, he would speak against slavery, but he never mentioned a particular evil group. I gotta tell you, I'll just be honest for a second, my, I have felt a weight like I can't describe over the last few weeks. Both for last week's sermon and this week's and the next two to come, because I know every week I'm challenging the enemy's kingdom. I'm challenging you to see your life in light of who Jesus is and not whatever you've been told. And that is hard and is offensive and is terrifying to me. Because I don't know how you're going to receive it. He says, his dad, when the civil workers from the north came down from the south to try to help those slaves and free them, he would preach sermons about their lack of holiness. They were trying to come down and bring the kingdom of God to earth, but they weren't necessarily Christian and they weren't aligned with making Jesus their king. See, the problem is we can't have a kingdom without a king. We can't just simply do good things on earth without also the surrendering of our hearts and lives to the king. We absolutely seek and save the lost and we make disciples who make disciples, but the goal of this is to bring God's kingdom to earth and it's the land of the already and the not yet. It will not look like heaven until Jesus comes back, but we're gonna fight for it. And we're gonna fight for it, we're gonna give to it, we're gonna do everything that we can to bring it about, but we need both the king, which we're gonna get to over these next two weeks and I know I'm gonna offend a bunch of people, 
And we need his kingdom, which I've talked about deeply these last two weeks, and I know that I've offended some people. But we need both. Jesus, Matthew 25, he's talking about the last day. He's talking about one day there's gonna come a day of accountability for all of us, and we're gonna stand before Jesus. He'll be the final judge. He's been given that authority by God the Father. And he'll separate us into two separate groups, the sheep and the goats. And I'm not gonna point at either one of you, so you, know, you can, whichever side you're on. But he's gonna put them into two different groups. He mentions who he says next, but he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. That's the promise to Abraham. Do you hear the language? Blessed by my father. Remember what God told Abraham? Through you, all nations will be what? Blessed. So to those on his right on the last day, you who are blessed by my father. How did they get blessed? Because they entered into the kingdom of God. Take your inheritance. But notice, by the way, I forgot to point this out. Notice who's talking. The what? The king. The king, Jesus. Take your inheritance. The kingdom. So we don't just have a king. We got a kingdom. And it's been promised to us. That's exactly what Jesus said he's bringing with him. He's the king over a kingdom. And those who are on his right, sorry, are those who have chosen to enter into the kingdom, not by human effort, but by following a savior named Jesus. But then he goes on. He says, this kingdom has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. Since he built the world, he was preparing this thing for you. In other words, he's restoring paradise in the presence of God. What went wrong when sin came into the world is we became separated from God in his ways. We started being selfish and seeking after what I want, how I want it, when I want it. And Jesus says, what I'm doing in this moment is I'm bringing a kingdom. I'm restoring paradise again where there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more suffering and no more disease. Come and enter into your master's happiness. I reached out to my friend Murphy this week and I said, Murphy, in your own words, would you tell your story so that I could share it with those who are listening? Here's what he said. My parents had a long history of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that ran generationally through both my mom's family and my dad's. They spent their early adult years partying to avoid the pain. And when they got married, they desired deeply to give something better to their kids. However, they didn't have the tools to be functional in a way that would have given us a normal childhood. My sister and I grew up in a house marked by addiction, physical abuse, and constant manipulation. We didn't start off in a position of poverty. My dad was on the ground floor of a successful herbal tea company and had a middle management job that allowed my mom to stay at home with us and send us to a Christian elementary school. They didn't really follow Jesus, but they thought we would get good morals through our exposure to church people. They didn't do much to offset the unstable attachments from such a crazy home marked with constant police intervention, social services, and mandatory trauma counseling, and my mom's suicidal ideations. Ultimately, my dad lost his job at 2000 when our chaotic home life spilled over into his work life. From there, it was a quick tumble into poverty. Several really poor decisions led us to losing basically the entirety of our life savings and put us in a position where we had all had to contribute. My mom's health was 
very bad, so she had a very hard time holding down work to pay bills. Eventually, my dad was held responsible for his contribution to the abuse in our household and sent to jail my sophomore year of high school, which is pretty close to around the time that I met Murphy. I moved from job to job to contribute for bills and cover my personal experiences. In high school, I began to attend a youth group that ultimately helped me find enough wholeness, as piecemeal together as it was, that would give me a foundation for adulthood and training to eventually go to Ozark Christian College for ministry. And I'm so glad that he showed up. And if Murphy is watching, I'm so proud of you. But there were days that I wanted to wring Murphy's neck. There are very few people on this earth I love like Murphy. And honestly, I'm one tiny investment that a ton of people made so that Murphy could succeed and overcome that bad hand that he was dealt. I didn't even do that much. Far other people did far more than I did. And I'm so glad that we did. (laughs) Jesus goes on in Matthew 25, he says this. Then the righteous are gonna look at Jesus and say, Lord, that's the same thing for king. Same word, king. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Every time you help someone in need, do you know who you're really helping? Jesus, every time. And it doesn't matter if it's your neighbor or a kid on the soccer team or a cousin or your parents. You're helping Jesus because these are image bearers. It all comes back to that. They are precious and loved and adored by him. And I wonder where this got lost in the big C church. Some, some churches and some ministries do a really good job with this, and Kingsway does a good job with this, but it, we can always do more. At least that's how I feel. And this week, and over the last few weeks, as I'm preparing this message, and I'm, I'm pretty sure my wife and my kids are watching this service right now, and I love you guys, but God has been kicking my butt because he's like, can you do more, Matt? In fact, Paul tells Timothy, Command those who are rich to give more and do more. And the problem is always, we don't think we're rich because we think somebody else has more than us, so therefore we don't have enough. And yet, the church in Philippi, the churches in Macedonia, it says, Paul says, they were poor, but they begged Paul. Even though Paul said, look, you guys don't have to contribute anything to the cause, they begged Paul, they said, please, we've been given everything in Jesus Christ that some other church paid for you to come here. Please let us have the opportunity. And Paul is humbled. He literally rebukes the Corinthian church who is abundantly wealthy. And he says, I'm coming to you and I'm bringing some of them with me. Please don't embarrass me when I come. They've given sacrificially out of whatever they didn't have to support this. If we show up and you do nothing, what in the world? How am I gonna defend you as this great church that I've told them about? It's complex. It's real. And I sense God saying, Matt, can you give more? Can you do more? And I go, probably. Probably. What does it look like? 
Well, did you know? Did you know that 5.3% of Hendricks County lives in poverty? Hendricks County, not downtown. Did you know that roughly 40% of Hoosiers, all of Indiana, in case you're new here, don't know what a Hoosier is. Did you know that roughly 40% of Hoosiers live paycheck to paycheck, meaning they're one catastrophe away from homelessness? I don't know if this is the most accurate stat. I tried to look it up this week, but a couple years ago, I heard this. Roughly 18% of Hendricks County are suburban homeless. It means they live on somebody else's couch at somebody else's house or out of their car. And when that family gets fed up with them, they kick them out and they go to somebody else's house. So that family gets fed up and they kick them out. Imagine the chaos of being a child trying to go to school and roughly 175 to 200 school kids in Hendricks County live in this situation. And I've been told around 100 in Avon schools alone. Imagine trying to learn in that environment. You don't know where your next shower is gonna come from, where your bed is gonna be, where your next meal is gonna be, what the instability and the insecurity of that. My friend, I told you the story, but he's a missionary in Peru. And um, through the COVID season, he just started looking around. He's going, some of these people have nothing. They can't go to work. They're stuck in their homes. I and mean, their shutdown was like a serious shutdown. And so his little mission group just said, hey, you know what we'll do? We'll just, we'll just, he said, I'll just put on Facebook. And Americans have resources, and a lot of them want to help. So he just put on Facebook, if you want to do something, let's, let's do something. And he couldn't believe it. He thought maybe get a couple thousand dollars. He got like $20,000. They just started buying food. And literally, they had to go out one by one. They couldn't choose. They could only do one a day. And you couldn't go out again for a whole week. So they would just choose. Go out and buy as many groceries as you could. Come back, pack them up, take them to families who had absolutely nothing and no access to anything. And he said what that did over time is it opened doors to us to be able to go in and sit in people's homes and tell them about Jesus. So it's kingdom and king. It's not either or. And as they started telling people about Jesus, people started believing in him. I mean, they don't know why these people don't even ask him, why are you doing this? It's because we got a king and he loves you and he believes you're made in his image and you're valuable. Even though the world says you're not, he says you are and they loved him. He said, we decided to launch a church. There were so many people coming to faith in Jesus and last I heard they had like 50 people meeting in a church that weren't previously Christians at all, all because they decided to reach out and do something about a problem. I go, what, what would happen if, if, if a group of people really believed that God could take a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and if you don't know the story, just give me some grace and Google it later, and God could actually multiply it and do something profound with it? What would happen if a group of people didn't put limits on what God could do and just said, God, I don't have much, but I got this. Could you use this? Could you take this? Could you do something with this? And then watch whatever God does next. So we gotta pray. We gotta pray because... This is where Jesus has to speak to you, okay? He's already calling and he's trying to get your attention. We're gonna, <laughs> I love you, brother, and I'm just messing with you, all right. We're gonna pray and we're gonna ask Jesus to speak right now. You ready? Heavenly Father, right now, right now, every single person listening at home or watching at home, Give us something, plant an idea, a thought in our heart and don't let it go. God, don't let it go. Don't let us sleep. Let us be uncomfortable until we do something about it. Give us one of these things that we can do, Father, to act on today. In Jesus' name, amen. What are we to do about poverty as Christians? Well, there's no way we could solve the problem. We're one church. We're one mission. But we could do something. Here's some suggestions. Connect. It's one of our core values, core actions, I should say. It's the great equalizer. 
No one is better than anybody else. All are loved and cared for equally. Imagine this. We actually have leaders right now, groups are waiting for people to sign up. But imagine this, you join a group of people at Kingsway. You maybe don't know them at all. And it's awkward at first because it's always awkward and we hate being awkward. But imagine this, you join a group of people and you commit your life to them. And when they have a need, you meet it. When one of their family members gets sick, you're the one showing up with meals. You're the one visiting them at the hospital. When a tree falls down on their car and they don't know what they're gonna do, you're showing up with your saw and chainsaw and you're cutting it down and you're trying to help them figure out how to, what to do with the car. Imagine all the things talked about by Jesus and the gospels lived out in a group of people saying, I'm gonna live my life committed to you. Will you live your life committed to me? And it doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor. It doesn't matter how much uh, education you do or don't have. Here, we are all equal. Here, we all have dignity. Here, we all are made in his image. See, on a Sunday morning, it's easy to look at somebody. You should walk by and say, good morning. It's good to see you and just keep going. But when you have to look at somebody's face in a home, and oh, by the way, you don't just go to the nicest person's home in the group because that doesn't provide dignity. You go to everybody's home and you sit in it. Some may be smaller and some may be bigger. And you think, but man, they got a basement. They got this big family. It was so much easier. And the reality is you may be carrying some shame about your house. Stop and group. Love them through it. Because it's not about how big or beautiful or nice or whatever the thing is like. It's about Jesus being among us and people having dignity and honor because they look like him. Second thing, serve. When we serve other people, we provide rest and recovery to the lost, the lonely, and the left out. And I stole that from my brother in a row. So think about this for a minute. Here's some ways that you could serve at Kingsway. Number one, serve in a ministry. My friend Ryan, who in the Peru, who planted the churches by feeding people, he got COVID feeding people. He did. I won't tell the embarrassing story about when it hit him in the middle of the mountains. It was not pleasant. So he went home, he rested, he recovered, and he went right back at it. That's not a rebuke for anybody staying at home. It's not. But the reality is, this is a hard world. And people need people. People need human contact. They need love. They need it. You need it. Imagine with me for a moment, Murphy's family. It blows up. Single mom, no job, but somebody has invited her to church. She shows up. She's got two kids. Murphy has a sister, and they show up at church. Now, whatever age group they're in at that time, they go into kids' program. They don't know what they're doing. They are terrified. They don't know anything. They feel insecure. Everything about their life is unstable and about to fall apart, but they've come to hear a word from the Lord. Now, imagine with me, they show up at a kid's classroom, and there's not enough people there. There's not enough volunteers that day because people were afraid of a virus or they were just too busy or they're whatever. I mean, we get the same people serving in our kids' ministry month after month and they're tired and they're exhausted. And this isn't a guilt trip. We just hired a new student pastor and for crying out loud, we didn't volunteers a student ministry who are gonna come alongside the Murphys of the world and say, I'm with you all the way to the end. I'm sticking with you, brother, because your dad, I don't know where he is, but I'm here. Your mom, I don't know what happened to her, but I'm here, I'm here. I'm here, I'll fill a gap. I'll stand in the gap for you. Now imagine these kids show up and they don't wear a sign on their chest that says, hi, my family just split up. They don't wear a sign on their chest that says, my daddy just lost his job. They don't have a sign on their chest that says, my mommy's uh, strung out on opioids. They don't have a sign on their chest that say, my parents have a spending problem and we, we just lost everything. They just show up and you don't know but they're dying for somebody to love them and care for them and hold them close and say, I love you, God loves you, and I'm so glad you're here. And that brief light, oh, it could shine so bright. It could shine so bright. 
I asked Murphy, I said, Murphy, well, tell me, how was God faithful to you and your family? And here was his words. He said, I think God's faithfulness to me and my family looked like the church. It reminds me of Luke 5 where the paralytic is brought in through the roof by his friends. Jesus looks at the friends and he commends their faith and forgives his sins. It was both. The local community, at least for me, was a place of escape, belonging, and exposure to family systems that could sow the seeds for healing. And that happened in the church. But there's other places. Like, what about going on a mission trip? And look, I get it, all right? Nobody's going on a mission trip right now, okay? But we will one day. I know families in this church who get two weeks of vacation a year and some of them take one and go on a mission trip and I've never heard them come back and say, well, that was a waste of time. That's a massive sacrifice, massive. But they say, when I met those people, when I went to that place, and they often go to the same place year after year after year because they go, once I, I, can't, I can't not. I look at those faces and I love them. I can't wait to go back again. What about this? What about one of our partners? There are godly ministries all around our community like Hope Healthcare and Shoulder Wings and Family Promise and Wheeler and they are trying to be Jesus in some unique places all around our community. I get it. You may only have one or two Sundays a year. You may have four Saturdays a year but what if you were to take one and say, you know what? I don't have every weekend. I don't have all the time but what I have, here you go. Where could you use me? But fear and greed and sin, it gets in the way. And I've been afraid to say that all week because I'm afraid you'll be mad at me. And I'm afraid you'll quit on me. Yeah, because it happened last week. And it'll probably happen again next week. It'll probably happen the week after that. And um, I'm having a hard time sleeping. I'm not going to lie. And the reason I'm having a hard time sleeping is because I love you. And you are my great reward. Thank you. But listen, some of you are mad right now because you love money and you love stuff. Everybody thinks poverty is a problem, but don't ask me to do something about it, Pastor. We gotta do something about it because it's our king and it's his kingdom. And I am so terrified that on the last day, some of you will stand before him and you'll try to justify these massive expenses and he'll say, what did you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine? I, I did a wedding recently, and I got paid by this couple, and I was really excited, so I went home, and I told my wife, I said, what if we do this, honey? I got this great idea. My son loves volcanoes, so he's been studying Mauna Kea and all these volcanoes that are on the main island of Hawaii. I said, what if, what if we take the next eight to 10 years? Every time I speak, every time I do a wedding, every time I do whatever and I get paid for it, we won't, we won't put it into the normal bank account. We'll just set it aside, and, and 10 years now, right, when we got enough money, we'll go to Hawaii as a family. It'll be like, you know, our kids will be graduating, going into their adult life, like it'll be our last chance. And my son was like, yes, like that was amazing. I was like, this is great. So I decided to pull up my phone and Google what it costs to go to Hawaii. And I came back and I said, how do you feel about Gatlinburg, hun? Like, <laughs> and it was like ten dollars to $15,000. And don't get me wrong, I would love to go to Hawaii. It's one of my dream places because mountains and ocean and everything amazing. But I, I don't know how I would stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, I spent $10,000 on a week when there are people who are suffering. And everybody has to work this out. We're gonna do a whole series later this year on how to work this out, but you gotta work it out. 
You can't act like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And I go on vacation with my family, but I try to weigh it with discernment and say, God, what is pleasing to you? And that's why. The third thing I would say is give. We are blessed by God to be a blessing to other people. And let me just tell you real quick, when you give corporately, like you give to the church and then we take those dollars and give them away, you know who gets the glory? Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you don't give individually. You give individually too, but when you give individually, you know who gets the glory? You do. And that's not always true. Please don't be offended. I'm just saying there's a power in corporate giving that points back to Jesus that individual giving gets me a pat on the back. Jesus calls that out and rebukes that in many, many passages. I'm not making this up. He says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. The whole point is you don't need the pat on the back. You're doing it for your Father in heaven and he's watching and he's taking note and he can't wait to say, good job, yes. And for some reason, reason I don't fully understand, I hope it's COVID. Man, four weeks ago, we told you the church is in the strongest financial position has been in a while and it's true. And for four straight weeks, our giving has been down. And I thought, is that bad news that people would suddenly go, well, the church doesn't need it anymore. And I go, the way I see it is I go, now we can do more. Now we can leverage this for more good in our community and in our world, not less. Just recently, I heard about a pastor who's going through a really hard time and I asked the person, I said, what can I do? And he said, I don't know. And I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna get on my knees. Like, what can I do? I wanna encourage this pastor. I don't want him to quit. I don't know what the issue is. I just know he's going through a hard season. And here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 11, 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Check that out. But whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So I've told you this a million times. I'm gonna keep saying it because some of you always tell me, that's a great idea, pastor. I even told some of those local pastors I've been meeting with lately and told them about it. Like, that's a great idea, pastor. This protects me from giving everything away and, and starving to death, Okay. My wife and I set up a generosity account and every time I get paid, we put a little money in that account and that's our have fun blessing other people account. So we give to the church and we give to other missionaries and other organizations, but that's our have fun blessing other people account. We can do anything we want with it as long as it's blessing somebody else. So one time I'm driving down the road and there's a person on the side of the road, he's got a sign, he and his daughter, and I pull over and I say, I don't know why. I've drove past a million people that, don't, that have a sign and I don't know why, God told me to talk to you. And he said, my wife, my, my daughter and I are traveling through town. We just need a place to stay. There was a hotel right behind him. We took him to the hotel. I paid for the hotel. I said, here's the thing. I'll call you tomorrow. If they need more days, you tell me. Out of that account, put it in there. I've met with people who couldn't pay their rent. I've not yet gotten to the point where I can afford to pay a month rent, but boy, I look forward to that day. Food for people, gas for people, gift cards for a date night. I mean, you name it, like, and it is so much fun. Oh, it's so much fun. And you know who gets refreshed every time? My wife. Because she's like the most generous person I've ever met. And I watch her come alive. And we don't fight about money anymore. Now she just gets to be who she is. And I'm way over on time. But there is one last thing, and that's why I would say it's invite. These are our core actors, but our mission is to spread God's kingdom of love to everybody. And so hopefully if everybody does everything that we've just talked about, this will be the greatest, most loving place on earth and when people show up, they'll know it. I'm gonna close with this, Isaiah 58, verse eight. After God corrects Israel, he tells them this, and I'm just gonna close and pray quickly. Then your light, when you do these things, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger of malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Oh God, let that be our country. Oh God, let that be our church. Oh God, let that be our home. God, for every man, woman, and child in here, give them one thing, one thing that they are gonna go do as a result of this, God, and it's not anger, it's surrender. And may they be blessed as they refresh others in your name. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said.